Welcome to the Conversations with Anna podcast. My name is Dr. Anna Stump, the Golden Ticket Professor, a self-proclaimed edutainer. I'm a former business executive turned high school teacher turned college professor. And in the past three decades of that transition, I have spent time with several generations. And with that as my foundation, I have some stories to tell. In each episode, you'll hear stories or interviews that will help you focus on your own truth. I want you to feel accepted, motivated, supported, and then I want you to be able to take what you know about yourself and your truth, go out into this big old world we live in and apply that so you can move forward with a strategy for a more authentic life. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's jump in to a conversation with Anna. It's early in the day, so much I want to do. I dedicate today to breaking rules. I'm gonna stick to a strategy. I'm gonna find out exactly what I'm made of. Is there really something wrong with just smiling the whole day long? Hello, and welcome to episode 11. And it's been a while since it was just a conversation with me. And I didn't really plan that to have this string of interviews. It did just work out where I had some very fantastic opportunities to share some just great people. So I took advantage of those and definitely did not plan on not having a good variety for you. So I'll definitely do better with that moving forward. But here we are today talking about a conversation of imposter syndrome, which is one that I've been asked about several times after even the podcast started. People were like, I hope you're going to talk about that. And I definitely think it's a conversation worth having. And if you think back to episode six with Ashley, where we talked about where we met, it's very funny that we met over this topic when she was giving a a little keynote speech at this um, social media competition at a university. So we're in a room with all these undergrad students and Ashley's talking and she's like, how many of you have ever experienced imposter syndrome? Well, no one raised their hand. (laughs) I didn't want to be first because I was like, we're here for these young people. But I'm looking around the room and I'm thinking, none of you are going to raise your hand. You're all liars. Like, shame on you, right? So, of course, I raised my hand. And I will say I have flipped the script on my thought process about those people. I'll get to that in a minute. But Ashley asks, you know, are you comfortable talking about when you had imposter syndrome? So I will be honest with you here. I told, of course, you know, first-generation college student, years working for a male-dominated retail company, moving around the country, two master's degrees, and a doctorate and you know and then I said and just recently judging competition in this room over here in hindsight that none of that is imposter syndrome necessarily um is going and being a first generation college student hard yes do you feel like you don't belong yes do you doubt yourself yes but it's the same thing that I think it's easy to use imposter syndrome because you just don't feel like you're deserving in many ways or you're nervous or it's a hard thing and you feel inadequate for a little bit, but that is not really imposter syndrome. So looking back, that was not a great example that I gave. It was good enough for the time. It wasn't really imposter syndrome. And thinking about the room full of those people, they're undergrad students. I mean, they've been in school since they were five. They're still in school. They have not had the level of life experiences, achievements, success, you know, just persevered, overcome for them to really have had imposter syndrome. So they were all being brutally honest. I was being judgy. Um, Shame on me. But 
I think that is one reason why I think this conversation is super important. In addition, I have edited, re-recorded, started, and stopped, and this is my third version of this podcast content, because this is pretty far removed from what I experience in life, and I want to do it justice, and I want to do a good job with it, because I think it's really important. 70% of people have identified that they have had experience with imposter syndrome. So I do think I think that number's probably low. I think some people aren't being honest still. But I do think this is something we all experience from time to time. But actually having this with us all the time, full time on board, I think might not be the 70% of us. So I want to I want to bring a little bit of awareness to this in terms of a seriousness, because I think if you do have this, I think if you do see this pattern in yourself, I think that is a therapy-worthy discussion because this syndrome is heavy and it is debilitating in many ways emotionally and mentally, and it's something that you are not going to work yourself out of. And again, I'm going to put this in the show note, but Ashley Sieb from episodes, um, I think, six and seven, amazing blog article about her own imposter syndrome, how it impacted her and how her therapist got her out of it. So I'll put that in the show notes. I think that's very super important to again, understand the severity of this. Now, does that mean like, as you listen and you think, well, I don't have this, I don't need to listen to it. No, because we all have experiences and bouts of this from time to time. I know that we do. I have. But for me to sit here and tell you I've had imposter syndrome is probably not fair to people who actually have. So all those disclaimers being said, let's talk a little bit about what this is and the kind of a definition of where it came from. So the first study done was by two female doctors. And I will tell you that there are many instances in this episode where we will discuss females. That is not to say men don't have this. Definitely not. I think that it is more commonly identified and commonly chronic with females, but certainly not wanting to lean one way or the other very much. But I do think it's important to note that this uh, phenomenon was discovered in the late 70s, 1978, by two female doctors who did surveys and talked to 150 successful professional women. But what they found was these women that they talked to felt a phoniness, that they were not intelligent, not capable, not creative, despite the evidence of high achievement. It is the last part of that that is super important to understand. The evidence of high achievement, which is why I look back to that room where I met Ashley and I think about those undergrad students saying, no, we never have imposter syndrome. It's probably incredibly true because they have not been tested and lived and achieved evidence to the contrary. So they're young, inexperienced maybe have some confidence issues from time to time. Of course, these were all people who came from around the country who placed in a competition. So they for sure have a little bit of evidence that they were good. But I think it's just really important to understand that the real crux of this conversation is about you have evidence of high achievement, you have succeeded, you have reached goals, you have done hard things, but you still live with the fact That did not happen because of you. You think maybe I got lucky, you pulled something off, whatever it might be. It is not even a fake it till you make it. The people that fake it till they make it know they're faking it. (laughs) 
the people with imposter syndrome, which is really truly a psychological pattern. It is a level of doubt and it is this persistent internal fear that you will be exposed as a fraud. Okay, this, this is the, just a living fear that someone is going to uncover and expose you to the world as being a fraud. So remember, 70% of people have bouts of this at some point. It does not discriminate. It comes and goes at different times. And it is a level of self-doubt that is just crushing. And I think probably my favorite person that I can quote um, that we would all understand, like just how ridiculous it sounds to the outside of a person is Maya Angelou. Maya Angelou was quoted saying, I have written 11 books, but each time I write one, I think, "Uh uh-oh, this is the one they're going to find out with. They're going to find out that I've run a game on everybody and they're going to find me out. Right? It's like, she can't even understand how brilliant and how much change she brought about and how her words impacted people. She just waited for someone to uncover the fact that she was a fraud. And think about that in level of internal dialogue that you have to have to keep this up. So even though self-doubt is hard, this is a whole different level. Consistently feeling like your accomplishments don't mean anything and whatever talent you have or whatever heights you reach or whatever goals you crush, deep down you just don't believe that you're talented enough to deserve praise. And even getting a positive comment, and I've talked on this podcast before about how bad I am at accepting compliments. Like I got this pink Power Ranger karate chop thing I do when people come at me with a compliment. Oh, nice shoes. And then I'm like throwing an arm up. They were on sale. Nice shirt. It was on clearance. (laughs) This old thing, you know, I love your hair color. Thank my stylist. (laughs) Like I can't accept a compliment. I'm working on that so much. But that is not imposter syndrome. That's just that's just me not having like that important enough self-worth quite yet. I'm close, but it just doesn't not it come natural. Like I need to practice that. This is a whole different thing. Imposter syndrome goes way beyond self-confidence. Like this is not a lack of confidence. This is more than jitters, right? You think about the one thing people are more afraid of than even air travel is giving a speech, public speaking. Well, everyone has jitters. Everyone, no matter how many times you do it, you always have these what if scenarios in your head, your palms get sweaty, you worry, your breathing's a little erratic, erratic, and then you get up, you do it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets and you feel more confident as you go on. That's just lack of confidence. Fear and worry, That's that all comes and goes, right? That could be just really a, a lack of being in control or a lack of controlling the environment and all the what ifs things that you do in your mind. But there comes to a point where you have to let things go and have them happen on their own. And that, if we've learned anything on this podcast so far, when we talked to Joe Baldwin Trot on her episode, episode 10 last week, it was about patience and trust. And here was what it comes down to. People with imposter syndrome don't trust themselves. They don't trust their outcomes. They don't trust the fact that if you give them a compliment, they don't even trust that that is sincere. Like they think compliments are some sort of double meaning and that they're being pandered to 
and that you're baiting them because you're about to uncover them as a fraud. So it's different than my like peak Power Ranger karate chop where I'm just not comfortable with it and I want to deflect it. It is taking the compliment and then rolling it around in your head trying to determine what does this person mean? Like they go into a tailspin. What does this person mean? What are they going to do with this? Why are they baiting me? This is some sort of like hidden meaning. And I can't even begin to imagine how much energy and just bandwidth from your mind and your emotions that takes to deal with. So the sense of strength that I get or other people get from just letting things go and believing you've done your very best and what happened was meant to happen and move on to the next thing, that helps me manage anxiety, panic, negative thinking, impatience, and allows me to focus on an accomplishment, the excitement of progress, all of those things. But that's because I have these voices in my head that can help me (laughs) rationalize all this. People with imposter syndrome don't, right? They, They hear voices, and I think this is where you get a little scary, right? Like, what do you mean they hear voices? There's a really great TED Talk that covers this um, very well, and it's called The Surprising Solution to the Imposter Syndrome by Lou Solomon. Phenomenal. I'll put the link in the show notes. She talks about when she was diagnosed and the voices in her head, and she's named them. Because I do think that is true when you start to have that negative self-talk and those types of things. Like, it, it gets dominant. And if you don't trust yourself, you listen and the voice you trust is the loudest. So if it is that internal dialogue of imposter syndrome, that is really all you can hear. So it is, this goes beyond the fear that you're never going to be good enough. This is fear that you have been labeled enough, but that you're a fraud. So Part of this comes definitely because people who feel like imposters hold themselves to a very unrealistic and unsustainable standard. They fall short of that standard almost every time, and that evokes a level of shame. And we, you know, I'm a big believer in all the things I talked about in episode two, understanding yourself, being able to describe yourself, telling your story, finding your truth, you know, um, reminding you, loving yourself, all of those. I'm a big believer in all that. But that is not the way out of imposter syndrome. Positive self-talk will not make this better. It just won't. Because imposters have, again, this just high level of expectation for themselves. And the self-doubt is chronic. You're not going to talk yourself out of it. Because the other voices in your head, the other sounds, the, the proof that you don't deserve anything and that you are a fraud is so much louder. So the experience of doing well and trying to change your mind will not, those two things do not match. So you think about what's on your lens. Everyone has these rules in their head about what it means to be a success, what it means to be competent, what it means to be enough, what it means to be true to themselves. And what I'm trying to get all of us to do, remember I say, stop shooting on yourself. You should not have, I should do this, I should do that, or I never quite make it, or I know, you know, the doubting self-talk, you can eradicate that fairly easily when you identify it. And one easy thing I found is add the word yet, right? Like I need 
I'm not going to be able to lose weight yet. I'm not going to be able to have a good relationship with my mom yet. I'm not going to be able to repair this situation as a parent yet. Talk about it in terms of it's something you have left to do. That's That works for me. But this imposter syndrome, again, manifests itself in a lot of different ways and a lot of different forms. And you have to identify those things and figure out how deep into this am I? Or how deep into this is or someone I care about or someone that I know. So Valerie Young is a doctor. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women and Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. So again, she talked about women and people in the title of that book. Just throwing that out there. I see it a lot. So a lot of times this is a female thing. But again, I don't think that this discriminates very much for anyone. So imposter syndrome, few different types, and Dr. Young kind of talked about these in her book. So the first one, again, you can have a moment where you see yourself in this description and think, oh, I do that. Do you do that with everything? Like, is this your MO with everything? And is it causing problems? That's when you know that, oh, I might have tendencies or I might have this imposter syndrome. So the first thing is the perfectionist. And the perfectionist's primary focus is on how something is done. And if the work is conducted in the proper way and it turns out well, good. But for them, even the most minor flaw, like a 99 out of 100, is failure and then a shame spiral right after. And I think it's really important for us to think about, especially if you're a parent, what this looks like. Because... I think back to that room of those undergrad students. It's a standardized world. You know, Ray and I talked about that in episode nine. It is a standardized test world where they prepare for the test and they know what it takes when they sit in a classroom. They have the grading scale. They have the rubrics. They have all the things. They know what it takes to get the hundred. And I don't, I got a, a gift handed to me. When I was in grad school the first time, I did not appreciate my undergrad the way that I should. I was a first-generation college student, and you think I would have just been in awe of the opportunity to go to college, but I was also raised by two parents who just said, college is what you do after high school, and we're going to make that happen for you. <laughs> so I enjoyed college, but I just probably didn't try as hard as I should have because it was handed to me. I did not have a stellar GPA, and I left with no debt. Who wouldn't love that? You'd go in there and do some effort and leave and no debt. It's a pretty cool gig. Got a great job, had a good thing going, decided to go back to school to become a teacher. So I'm in a master's program and I just decided I wanted a 4.0. Like I was, uh, I was like 32 and thought I didn't really perform well as an undergrad. I'm going to get a 4.0. I don't know who I thought I was doing that for. I guess myself, um, but I had a professor hand back a paper and he'd given me an A minus. And there and it was like one of four grades in the class. And there was no way I was gonna get an A in the class. And there was no way I was gonna have a 4.0 in this whole program if I didn't get an A in the class. And I was somewhat devastated. So I went to him after class, and he will he will tell you the story the same way I did. There was no rubric, he made no comments on it. There were two chocolate fingerprints. <laughs> Because Dr. Mendenhall always ate chocolate while he graded. And I went to him and I said, can you explain this to me? And he was like, well, what do you need to know? And I said, well, why didn't I get an A? And he's like, I just didn't feel like it was an A. And I 
lost it. Like, I was ready to call the president of the university on the way home. I was ready, I don't know, call the news station, call somebody. How dare he? He didn't feel like it. I couldn't understand that. So we had subsequent conversations um, because I could not let this go. And he finally said to me, Anna, I think you need to revisit your expectations of yourself, of this program, and who you want to be as an educator. <gasps> oh, <laughs> okay. I was deep. And then I drove home that night, not thinking about the president of the university's phone call I was going to make, but I drove home that night thinking about what, what do I care? Like, what do I care about a four? I mean, I don't even, to be honest with you, I do not even remember the GPA I had in either of my master's degree or my, I think I do remember my doctorate, but why do I care? I don't, nobody sees that. It's not on a t-shirt, on a bulletin board. It's not on anything. Like, why do I care? And he hit home so hard for me because if I hadn't had to grapple with my expectation and my thought on this grade, how am I going to be a fair and partial and realistic educator? That was huge. So I in no way, shape or form in my entire life have felt like I was a perfectionist um, in anything. I don't desire perfection in anything. Why I was doing it in that moment, I don't know. But I got called on it and got snapped out of that super quick. But think about a person who thinks that 99 out of 100 is a massive failure. And that while other people are celebrating the 99 and how hard that was to achieve, you have a person over here who thinks that one point is what's going to have everyone else figure out that they're an imposter. That is heavy. Then we move on to the expert. And the expert is pretty much the same as the perfectionist, but their primary concern is not on how something gets done. It is on what and how much you know or how much you can do because they expect to know everything. And even a minor lack of knowledge is failure, which leads to shame. So I think what helped me with this is having that description. If you remember in my episode zero, where I talked about going to work with Walmart and the first people that reported to me, uh, the first people I was in charge of, every last one of them had been with Walmart longer than I'd been alive. And all of a sudden they reported to me. And I thought, well, this can go one of two ways. I can walk in here like big manager person and alienate them all and have them all disrespect me because why would they even think that I was worth respecting? Or I could walk in and just be like, how can I possibly help you? And can I hang out with you and learn what you know, right? Like, that's kind of how I went at it. They were the experts. And the person who has this level of imposter syndrome will not rely on anyone else to know. They have to know everything. And for this person to ever say, I don't know, or let me find out, or to show up and have someone pose a question that they don't have the answer to right then and there is devastating. And I personally think the greatest gift that you can give someone is to tell them you don't know something and go find out for them and come back to them because you are not ever going to know everything. But to admit that, to be vulnerable, and then to take action and come back, that is how we model positive, healthy behavior. And that's how you actually show respect and reverence for the other person. So, Imagine the level of pressure the expert feels in having to know everything and be ready for everything and do everything. I mean, exhausting. 
And I'm a professor of marketing who stood in front of MBA classes and undergrad classes and high school class. I mean, I've stood up and had people ask a question. I'd be like, that's a great question. I don't know that I know the answer. Or I've never thought of that. Or let's look. Because I just can't know everything. Quite honestly, don't want to know everything. And I think we all have to just kind of admit we live in an ever-changing world and we won't know everything. But the level of this for the imposter syndrome is the minute they get called not knowing something, the amount, again, of just failure and shame involved in this. And then what triggers in their mind about what is the result of that? Here comes the next person. This is the soloist. They care about who completes the task. Because in order to make it the achievement that it should be, it has to be them and them alone. Because you need to figure out how to do it and do everything on your own. Because needing help is a sign of failure, which leads to shame. And I've never been really great at delegating part of that is just because I know everybody else is busy. Like it's a level of empathy. Sometimes I don't always necessarily feel like I can, I'm the only one that can do it. I, I do know what it feels like when you don't delegate well and how much stress that puts on you. What I cannot possibly imagine is to be this person in all things. And I think when my husband told the story in his episode about how he has to approach me for help. (laughs) Can I help with dinner? No. Can I help you with? No. But if he comes and stands beside me and says, what can I do? Oh, here. (laughs) That is an unfortunate personality glitch that I have. And I think we all somewhere, it's like, I compare that to walking into a brick and mortar retail establishment. And the first person that works there that you come across says, can I help you find anything? And even if you're looking for something, you say no. (laughs) And I think that that's just my natural reaction when someone says, can I help you with that? No. But when he comes and stands beside me and says, how can I help? Or what still needs to be done? I have no problem handing it over to him. So again, we're hard people to deal with us humans. Got to have a lot of grace. But the soloist is a person that if someone stood next to them and said, how can I help or what can I do? The amount of shame and the amount of inner dialogue around they're about to expose me as a fraud. They're about to show the world that I don't belong here. This is about to happen. I mean, just that fright. Think about your adrenaline when the, the fight or flight thing that happens. And I really, I tell you when I've been researching for this um, show, I've gone back to the story that Ashley told in her episode. I believe it was her first one where she talked about her traumatic childhood and the things that happened to her and how her brain just formed differently because of that. And that to me was really impactful story because I can think about of young people and I think about imposter syndrome. I think about people who've had trauma and think about the amount of brain power and the amount of energy and effort and emotion and their mental health that is tied up into their fight or flight or their fear or their survival instincts. And these are functioning humans who have had levels of success. These are adult people who are 
triggered in a way that that's what's happening with their brain. And what is incredible about this, if you stop and think about it, these are people who are accomplishing things, who are doing well in life, who from the outside, we're all thinking, man, that person is amazing. But the amount of internal dialogue and energy that is being wasted on them being frightened that we will all figure out they're not, and the fact that they will not buy into it, imagine how limiting that is. Oh, it's exhausting for me to think about. I just want to go hug everybody and get them all into therapy. So moving on from the soloist, now we have the natural genius. The natural genius also cares about how and when accomplishments happen. And their competence is measured in terms of ease and speed. So they cannot struggle to master something. And there can't be anything that they aren't able to do on the first try. Oh, imagine this how that level of expectation is going to lead to failure and more shame. So the natural genius. And then finally, we have Dr. Young talks about (laughs) three people in one here, the superwoman, superman, or even super student. So you have three in a row. I love how she brings in students because again, I think as parents, we have to help identify these things. And if you are a parent with any of these tendencies, you have to step back and do your like bird's eye view of what's happening with your little people um, as a result of kind of how you fall into some of these things. But the superhero person here, superwoman, superman, super student, super whatever, fill in your um, noun, measures competence based on how many roles they can juggle and excel in. They need to do both. They can't do all the things. They have to do all the things and do them better. So if they fall short in any role, whether it's a parent, a volunteer, a spouse, a partner, things they do at home, being a good friend, being good at work, hosting things, volunteering, all of those things have to be juggled at a level of excellence. And if they don't, they feel shame because they can't handle and they should be able to handle everything perfectly and easily to an excellent outcome. And they can't. None of us can. So I always question these people who take on all the things, like what is it you are trying to prove and to whom, right? Like that's always a thing. So that's kind of the what of the imposter syndrome. Those are things to think about when we want to identify it. But it can be really difficult to recognize in yourself, I think, because again, even I'm sitting here telling you, I probably have had bouts of it from time to time, but it's not a long-term type thing because maybe I'm just lazy, but I'm looking at this list, perfectionist, expert, soloist, natural genius, and superwoman. I'm exhausted just thinking about all those things. Like I don't have the energy to be all of those things. I just really don't. Um, But if you try and like point out all of my successes, I will again, pink power ranger, karate chop move, you away from thinking that that's all me. So it's a fine line between self-doubt, self-confidence, and imposter syndrome. Just, I mean, I can't stress that enough. I mean, I probably have already, being honest, but I'm just going to still just bang it into the ground. So you can give the impression a lot of times when you have imposter syndrome that you're more confident than you are. And you use, again, like I said, that whole, well, I got lucky. And I'm going to go back to 90s Oprah because we know she's my guiding light. (laughs) But Oprah, back in the day, talked about coincidence. 
And she had this amazing little thing she used to say. She didn't believe in coincidence. Oprah felt like you are successful when your preparation meets opportunity. And if you're constantly prepared, opportunity will be there and you will have your moment. And that is not a coincidence. You can't continue to talk about coincidence. So if you truly believe that you're prepared and you're doing all that you can and you're well-balanced and you're healthy and you're living in your truth, I really don't think you can spend much time under the imposter umbrella. I really just don't. But it happens for lots of reasons. A couple of different reasons that I've um, come across that it happens is like, why would you feel fake? What would happen that cause you to feel just incredibly fake? Sometimes it's how you were raised. If you were raised being overshadowed by someone, maybe a sibling or a relative, or if no one ever acknowledges you for anything that you've ever done well, whether it's unrealistic expectations or just lack of awareness that you're doing well or that you didn't have people, that's when you start to doubt anything that you do because there's a little bit of comparison and just a little bit of unfamiliar feeling there. But we can also flip that. So if you were told or we tell kids that they're perfect, that everything they do is good enough, that they can do anything they want to do, grow up, be anything they want to be, if we mow down all of their um, adversity, if we remove all their risk, if we make everything a safe place and they can do anything with ease, they will be hit later in life with the reality that their skill set's only going to get them so far. And to maintain this perfection that they had, they are going to have to really step it up and they're going to constantly doubt their self-worth and that they've really accomplished anything and that they're going to be exposed any minute because what, what they were praised for as a youth is not going to be something they can maintain as an adult. So when they have rare instances of praise or validation, nobody believes it, right? Regardless of what happened to you in your formative years, the, um, TED Talk that I mentioned, that surprising solution to the imposter syndrome with Lou Solomon, she's very forthcoming in that about her father being in the Air Force and his level of expectation with them. And the fact that he had this shiny Air Force um, officer kind of exterior outside the home, but he was kind of, he was a raging alcoholic and just a mean, mean man um, inside the home. So she would constantly get A's and do all the things. And if she didn't get an A, then he berated her. But if she got all A's, then he would say, well, that school you go to is just not uh, clearly not hard enough. So it's that that she kind of carried on until she got identified with this and then went through therapy and can now recognize when these voices take over in her head about you're about to be exposed, you're a fraud, you're this, you're that. And then she kind of like says, okay, here's a moment where I have to flip this around and restructure my limiting beliefs. Because that's what this the, the solution to imposter syndrome is. And even if you don't have the full-on case of this, right? Even if you kind of dabble in it, like I said I do from time to time, even if it's just a little self-doubt, I think restructuring limiting beliefs is something we all need to know. I think the difference is, I have some limiting beliefs I need to restructure. I need to worry about how to tame down my pink Power Ranger karate chop when it comes to taking compliments or allowing people to apologize to me. I'm fairly good at being vulnerable with my tribe. 
the problem is I use self-deprecation and humor and I get out in front of it. So when my like self-doubt or what could have manifested into um, imposter syndrome flares up, I make a joke about it. I just throw it out there. And if somebody laughs, then I give them the side eye like, hey, hey, <laughs> this was your moment. But then if they laugh, I'm like, oh, well, maybe they just think I'm funny because honestly I am. But again, it's vulnerability. It's just icky vulnerability. It's toxic vulnerability. So those are all things that I realize, again, are standing between me and my truth. I'm an Enneagram 8. I got a lot of other things going on uh, personality-wise, super social, super like supportive of people, whatever. I have a real hard time being fully vulnerable where I'm not twisting it somehow. So that's stuff I have to work on. Those are things on my lens that I'm working on. So those are restructuring limiting beliefs because it's not okay to put myself down first. Because sometimes I do that thinking someone else is going to do it and I might as well just get out in front of it and make a joke about it or something. And that's become a pattern that I've developed and I kind of know where it came from. Like I remember how that muscle got developed. I just need to get a bigger muscle that I work on more often. Because honestly, these bouts of self-doubt or even imposter syndrome can become a strength. But you have to be conscious of your ability. You have to know when to stop certain dialogue. You have to have therapy and coping mechanisms and a different solution to kind of channel that energy in a different direction. So you have to be aware of it before you can improve it. And if you're aware of it, you will improve it. So that is why I think it's important for all of us to understand this. Because again, just because you don't wear it all the time doesn't mean you don't try it on now and then, right? So while imposter syndrome may never go away, some of the things we're dealing with may never go away, you will get better with dealing with it. So if you truly want to be imposter syndrome, you have to take your self-limiting thinking and you have to understand that you are competent and that you have to redefine success for yourself. What you are doing is not fair to yourself. So there's a little vulnerability in that. And I will say, I th- we throw the word vulnerable around a lot. And that is not a weakness. Um, not Being vulnerable is not a weakness. It is hard, hard, hard work if you're going to be truly vulnerable. And it's something I think that people with imposter syndrome not definitely not comfortable with. Because you go back to that list, perfectionist, expert, like those people are not going to be comfortable with facing on their fears and being less and lowering their expectations. That is going to take a lot of time. So how do you lean into this feeling and figure all of this out and not think of yourself as a list of achievements? Because even Ashley and I talked about that in episode six, like we are so tied to the what in this world, what we've done, what we've accomplished, what degrees we have, what our job titles were, what we made, where, you know, what house we have, what car... The what's are a little much. We have to understand that we are made up of our successes and our failures. And constantly remind ourselves that we're learning, we're evolving, we're changing. And we have to fail sometimes. And it can't be a 99%. That 1% is not a failure. So asking yourself some questions. And I've talked a lot in here about journaling And making lists because I have a Facebook group for this podcast. If you ever want to join us in there. One of the questions I asked, I did a poll. Like how many of you journal 
regularly, rarely, wish I could, but it's just not my thing, never. And what I learned is we're all different, right? Some people bullet journal. Some people have these wonderful visual journals. Some people love a good journal that's already pre-printed and ask questions. Other people do different types of things. Other people start and then abandon it and maybe come back. That's all fine. It's all fine. Whatever works for you. It's it's really just going to meet. For, this is my interpretation of journaling. And you may have a different one. Um, come to the group and tell us. Because if you have a better solution for what hit and miss thing most of us are doing, we'd love to hear it. But if you will journal and be vulnerable and open in that, even if it's just lists of things or answering questions or, you know, putting out your thoughts, if you will look for threads of commonalities with things to learn about yourself, that leveled upon those personality assessments, leveled upon the what's in your life and the who's in your life and the how's, all of those things come together to tell your story. And somewhere in there, you will find your truth. So there's a couple of questions you can ask yourself, like, what core things, what beliefs do I hold about myself? And that was kind of what I talked about in episode two with like loving yourself and making a list of positive things about yourself. If that is a super, super, super hard struggle for you, then that is a sign. That is something you need to work on. And there were things on that list. If you remember from episode one, where we talked about yourself, I said, even if you're nice to somebody, write that down. Because unfortunately, those are the baby steps we have to get to in order to start feeling comfortable, feeling good about ourselves. That is a big thing. What do you think of yourself? And I think in that thing, I said, start a list and come back and forth to it if you need to. If you think of something, go right, add it to your list. Keep going and then read your list over from time to time. That advice is showing up in my research about imposter syndrome as well. So very good habit to get into. But what is it you think you're lacking for approval from other people? And when I say that, I mean for you to accept their approval. Because you are more than likely approved and held in high regard and respected and other people are in awe of you. You don't believe that yet. So what is it you would take for them to believe you? So a couple of things I think that need to have uh, going on here for that to happen is we really, again, have to stop with comparisons. Talked about that with Ashley. Brene Brown talks about it all the time. Stop the comparisons. That is the thief of joy. You cannot do it. And if you are on social media a lot, it's probably a lot of it's coming from there. And that is just not, I mean, I used to ask a room full of undergraduate students about Instagram. How many of you look at Instagram and you feel like you have a bad life because of the life you see other people living? Almost every hand in the room would go up. And I'd say, keep your hand up. If you feel like what you're looking at is more than likely staged, fake, filtered, whatever. Keep your hand up. Every hand stayed up. So every person that looks at Instagram and looks at other people's lives and thinks I'm less than or I'm not doing well because my life doesn't look like that was also willing to admit a lot of what they saw was not real, but still held themselves to that standard. Not healthy. Not healthy. Stop it. Get off that stuff if you need to. That is going to cause you a lot of inferiority feelings about yourself, about your life, oh, about your family. You just can't. 
So if social media is some form of comparison tool for you, limit yourself. I think you have to own feelings and say them out loud because I think it's important. But communication is my number one strength. So of course I would. And this may sound awful to you. And really, that's where vulnerability happens. If you can look at someone and say, I think I'm a perfectionist, which they're probably going to know that about you, to be honest, and it's exhausting, or I don't want to do this, or I don't know what, I don't know how to not be an expert, or I start to say it out loud. And like I said in episode one, if you need to do that in front of the mirror, do it in front of them, whatever you have to do. You have to take ownership of this stuff and put it out there. So you find someone who knows you, you find someone you can be vulnerable with, you talk to yourself, or you get a therapist, whatever it takes, say it out loud, own it, put a label on it, start to parse through it. Very important. Okay, this last one's going to sound incredibly crazy. Um, And it's been called a lot of different stuff, but I came up with a fun new name. Got told this, oh gosh, I don't know, back in 1995, I think, that no one will celebrate my success and that I need to keep, they call it a glory file. And it was just like, start a file folder and write down things that you do. And it was really to help me get ready for an annual evaluation at work. So they're like, if you read a business book or you attended a conference or you whatever, in 1995, you're pickings were pretty slim on those things. But if you receive a compliment from someone or if you get good feedback, like put all that in your file. And I thought, okay. So I think it was probably a year or two and I finally created one and I still have them. I still have everything. And I've kept notes from students, notes from families about their students. I've kept certificates and certificates. I got this thing in this big file folder And it's great. I don't think about it all that often, the file folder itself. What I want you to create, since we're in 2020 and we all have our phones on us all the time, I want you to create a folder on your phone. And I'm going to call mine the Boulder folder. I already have it. But it's being bold, right? It's the Boulder folder. There's no you. I'm not talking about the giant rock. This is not a, um, you know, Roadrunner uh, Wiley Coyote moment. where you're about to get crushed. B-O-L-D-E-R, bold folder, bolder folder. Record your achievements, every compliment, every good comment on, um, on social media. If you get someone gives you praise or whatever it might be. I know this sounds incredibly vain and ridiculous, but screenshot it and put it in there. And I'll tell you the first thing that I put in mind Um, When I got, it's like having an iPhone makes this so much easier. And I'm sure it does for you Android people too. I just don't know. But I remember making my son's birthday cake when he was like, have a picture of that cake in there. Because you remember if you're a parent or if you're not, you can think back probably to your, the pictures of your first few birthdays because you don't remember them. Because the first few birthdays that any kid has is not exactly about the kid. It's about the parent. And all of the themes and the -the over-the-top stuff and the party favors and the food, it's all to show what a good parent you are. (laughs) And it really doesn't have anything to do with the kid those first few years. And then later your kid starts to want to do this or want to do that and you still make it a thing because it's this little person and you're celebrating. 
And I just remember the year that my son said, I want you to make my cake and I want to help you. And I was super uncomfortable with that because I was like, how's it going to be amazing if I have anything to do with it? I'm, I don't bake well. I don't certainly can't decorate a cake, but that's what he wanted. That's what we did. You could not, I could not get money for this cake. I probably couldn't give it away. It looks like, don't get me wrong. It's on a pedestal because they have cake pedestals. And that's where I put this quote masterpiece of a crooked, droopy, ugly looking cake. But I made that for my kid because he asked me to and he thought it was the best thing ever. And that was a moment I showed up and I took a picture of that thing. I've got it in my Boulder folder. I have notes from people. I have text messages from people. I have pictures of moments that I don't want to forget. And some of them are ugly. They're not pretty. Some of them are really super ugly. But they're important to me because they're moments where I have documented that I did hard things. And if I start to feel like I'm less than, that I'm an imposter here in this world, I I do hard things. I've done hard things before. I will do hard things again. And it feels good sometimes when you're having that day to go through all of that. When I have to look at a challenge and think, I'm not really sure how I'm going to do this. I think back to those images. I'm a very visual learner too. I'm very kinesthetic, very visual in how I learn. So as I say this to you, you may think this all sounds ridiculous and you would never do it. And that's fine. You find your way. You find your way to be bold in moments that make you feel vulnerable. And you find your way to draw, not from others. I mean, you can. That's fantastic. But think about how to come from within. Whatever it is you do, whether it's a folder, whether it's a picture, whether it's a group of things, whether it's your journal, whether it's a vision board, I don't know, whatever it is for you, you have to figure out how to leave your trail, not necessarily of what's. It's not your resume. It's not your, you know, shiny paper accomplishments that you would show the outside world. Sometimes this is just things that are personal to you that you would have a hard time explaining to someone else. And that's okay. So I think those things are super important. And if you have a hard time thinking of those things, then you, I'm going to use my Jeff Foxworthy voice, you might have imposter syndrome, right? Like if you can't think of those little moments in life where you are proud for whatever reason and you feel like, I have done this, then you might have some of these symptoms of imposter syndrome. So again, separating your feelings from the fact of why you think you're a fraud or why you think you can't do things. Um, and you may have to build that muscle. It's why I think the the visuals, the pictures, the lists, the journals, the conversations you can have with people around this are really important because that's how you start to acknowledge and accept and then eventually change things. But you have to allow yourself not to know everything, not to do everything, how to be a learner, how to just contribute to something. We're going to have a couple podcast episodes coming up about the power of the word no or, you know, like just not doing everything or fear. And you don't have to be the most interesting person and the most accomplished person. Those things, those what's are not really truly what defines you. So hopefully some of this resonated with you. Hopefully you're able to think about this in a new light, whether it's imposter syndrome or confidence, or if it's you or if it's symptoms and someone that you know, and you can start to think about, a road, 
or a path that will take you some different direction. I think back to times in my life, like sitting in that room with Ashley, like I literally thought I've had imposter syndrome a lot. And in many ways I have, but it has not necessarily been imposter syndrome. It's just been horrible bouts of self-doubt. Because the reason I know that is because when I've gone on to do things, then I have self-confidence. So figuring all of that out, and you are starting to hear these reoccurring moments where I'm talking to you about embracing yourself and your, your gifts and your talents, getting close to your truth, all that is so uncomfortable for us. I hope you're doing that. I hope you are making your lists. I hope that you have learned, uh, like, I, how many times have I mentioned the word Ashley? talked about her in this podcast. But when you go back and you listen to her story about just what therapy has meant for her, how she's able to overcome these things and identify with herself. So as you finish this conversation, if you're left wanting more, please go down and click on the link to her blog, where she mentioned how she found herself in just drowning in imposter syndrome and how she kind of worked her way out of it with her therapist, with awareness, with hard work, like she's done everything. But she's, you know, in the arena now. And that's so powerful. We no matter what level we are with this, I think uh, understanding it and doing better really helps. Feedback in any form is so important. Anytime someone takes time to do that and pour into me that way, I have to understand I did something that caused them to want to do that. And I have to just own that just like I own all of my failures. And I got to tell you, I don't lay in bed at wake at night thinking of all the amazing things that I've accomplished in life. I don't sit there and think about the look at me moments. Didn't I show up? No, I lay there and think about all the weird that, you know, those memes on Facebook that are like, you lay in bed at wake at night thinking of all the awkward things that you said in junior high. Like (laughs) that is so much easier than all of this other stuff. It's not as harmful when you have the ability and the balance inside of yourself to ward it off. So look for those people, maybe they're you, who are going to need more work on this and figure out what that looks like. So I hope this was a good conversation. I hope it gave you some things to think about, some action items as well. If you want to continue conversations offline, like I said, please find us on Facebook The name of my Facebook group is Conversations with Anna. It's our online community, private Facebook. So join, talk to us about these things. We do live events and different things from time to time. I do have a Facebook page, a LinkedIn page, all of all the things. And you can find all of that as well as get in touch with me on my website, goldenticketprof.com. And I did have someone say, I don't think you've ever talked about this golden ticket thing. And I probably haven't done a good job with that. So I will talk more about that at some point. But really, the golden ticket has evolved from me first talking about it in high school classroom to talking about it today as being in ownership and awareness of your truth and how you can impact other people and and develop it more. So that's I'll talk more about that in future episodes, I promise. Seems very odd that I talk about truth and lenses and conversations And then I'm golden ticket prof. It's like many identities. Very complex person, apparently. But anyway, I hope this was a good conversation and it gave you some things to think about. Have a great day. And thanks for listening to this. (music) 